Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market targeted oncology medicines that address unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore welcomes Sapna Prasad and William Burns for a conversation about pharmacoeconomics. Sapna Prasad is a pharmacoeconomic specialist at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and William Burns is an undergraduate at Yale University. Dr. Gore is director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So who can tell me pharmacoeconomics? I usually have a rule on the show that I won't say anything more than three syllables. So (laughs) well, what's that? So pharmacoeconomics is essentially the application of health economic principles applied to pharmaceutical interventions. And what we look at is we look at the cost effectiveness or the cost benefit of any sort of intervention that includes drugs. Okie doke. So why... Would a hospital like Smilo Cancer Hospital hire somebody to be their resident pharmacoeconomist, <laughs> or is that what you call yourself? Yeah, I do. Um, it, it's a new strategy. It's a novel strategy. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that drug costs are increasing. Um, a lot of news articles that you've read in the past uh, few years have focused on the high price of cancer drugs specifically. Um, Traditionally at at a hospital, the formulary is managed by looking at the clinical side, so the efficacy and the safety of a drug, and cost generally isn't a consideration. So the idea behind creating my position was really to bring in this parallel dimension where we look at the pharmacoeconomic evaluation of a drug, and we're able to say, hopefully, um, the value of the drug to the patients and whether the cost of the drug is in line with that value that we see. So, not to be too much pushback here, but I'm thinking that if I've got cancer and I want treatment with some fancy new drug that I saw on some commercial on TV or whatever, your job is to say that, nah, we don't want to pay for that. I mean, I don't like that so much. So we actually don't, I mean, you know, (laughs) when patients have cancer, you definitely don't want to say no to a treatment that may help um, prolong their lives or reduce their side effects from other chemotherapy treatments. So the intention is not to say that we will not offer a certain treatment at a hospital. The intention is to really show among a certain group of patients what treatments may have the highest value for the price that we're paying. And the idea is that hopefully you can get to a point where a model can show you among a certain subgroup of patients in a first-line therapy, this is the treatment that would have the most value. I see. All right. Well, we'll come back to that. Uh, Now, William, you are a freshman at Yale, I understand. Yes, I am. Um, I'm just an undergraduate. Uh, Not just an undergraduate. A newbie. newbie. Uh, You're a newbie. Um, I have not declared my major yet, um, but uh, actually recently Yale just came out with a new neuroscience major, so um, I think I might be doing that. Um, But just stepping back a bit, I also am a contributor to the Yale Journal of Medicine and Law, 
which is a undergraduate publication focused on the intersection between medicine and law. And we focus on many issues related to healthcare policy, bioethics, healthcare economics, biomedical research, and global healthcare. Uh, so one of our recent publications uh, dealt with drug pricing in the pharmaceutical industry. And the whole issue. The whole issue, uh, very, very generally. So okay. the, the approach that I took was from a more psychological perspective um, in which I looked at the tools which the pharmaceutical industry uses to, um, to trick consumers into accepting their higher prices. So my article, which was... <laughs> no bias there, right? <laughs> uh, Tricking. <laughs> right. So my article was called The Pharmaceutical Industry's Trojan Horse. So uh-huh. um, along those lines. So uh, I delved into, like I said, those tools that they use, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to uh, drive up the prices for, for drugs. So uh, just an example that I, that I talked about in my article was that in the United States, we are one of the few countries where the drug industry has a right to directly advertise to consumers about their pharmaceutical products. Right. So the only other countries that do that are Brazil and New Zealand. So it's a pretty unique United States phenomena. And you can imagine that this practice has some benefits, including improved patient dialogue, improved patient clinical contact, reduced underdiagnosis, um, removed disease stigmas, but you can also imagine that there are disadvantages to this, this approach as well, uh, mainly that there is some min- misinformation and deception being spread a- among, uh, among the society. So in many cases, what happens is companies will kind of ignore certain information about their drugs and, uh, on the other hand, kind of bolster other sides that they think are going to make their drug appear uh, more profitable to the Well, consumer. don't they always have that little part where they rattle off all the side effects? Tell your doctor mm-hmm. if you have blah, 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 blah. Right, but in, in all likelihood, nobody's really listening to that. They usually can't understand it, in my experience. Yeah, nobody can really understand. And what they emphasize is the ethos rather than the logo. So they'll have... Help uh, me with that one. <laughs> you're, get, you're getting very Yale undergraduate <laughs> for me. I haven't done that in a long time. That's so important. The, they'll just have, um, you know, uh, a couple who are... You know, at the carnival, eating popcorn. Um, yeah, and she had terrible having, psoriasis <laughs> a few weeks ago, right? Right, having a or great rheumatoid time. rheumatoid arthritis. So, so generally, tricks like these where... People well, in bathtubs, that's a popular one. That's right? another one. Oh, there are so many. <laughs> Advertising is great. Um, but there, there are many tricks like these that the industry is using um, in order to convince consumers that their product is, is, is good. But doesn't that just really uh, stimulate the consumers to talk to their doctors about this product? And if, I mean, I find people will often ask me about something they saw on TV, and I, I can just tell them that, well, that doesn't really apply to you. And they say, oh, okay. Right. That, that's, that's one of the benefits that, that I said, improved uh, patient uh, awareness. Or- uh, awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are definitely benefits to, to this practice, uh, direct-to-consumer advertising. So... Yes, you're correct. But uh, on the other hand, because of this min- misinformation and, and this deception, there there is some disadvantages to direct to consumer advertising. Yeah, no, I, I'm not a big fan, but uh, <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, so, Sapna, do you think that that drives 
uh, our uh, patients' um, demands or expectations? Do you, do you see that much? I do. Um, I agree that it's a great way to, to have the patient own their own care, uh, maybe become in, more involved in their care, and to start a dialogue with their physician about certain treatments that may be appropriate for them. Um, I, I think that the negative side of that is when maybe that a, that treatment is not appro- appropriate for the patient sure. or when the outcomes are not like the commercial. You know, you maybe won't be able to go to the carnival one week after beginning a treatment and your quality of life is actually very different. Um, and I, I think for the pharmaceutical companies, it also helps drive uh, the price increase. I think when they start to set prices for drugs and they go and they talk to physicians about what your patient demand is, um, if you've had a lot of patients come and ask you about a particular drug, you may be likely to say, I think I'm going to try this drug in this setting and see how my patients do. Well, are pharmaceutical uh, companies able to charge whatever they want for their drugs? How are prices set? So essentially, um, the short answer is yes, they are. So, oh, wow. so we it's all market in, driven, huh? It is here in the United States. Um, basically, when a, a drug is approved by the FDA, the manufacturer decides on a list price or a selling price for the drug. Now, there are a lot of negotiations that go into what an insurance company or a hospital will actually pay for the drug. So, there's often a lot of rebates that are involved, um, and it's usually in exchange for a percentage of the population in their hospital or in their insurance group that they might treat. Um, And the interesting thing is every time a new drug comes out, they sort of benchmark their drug price based on the alternative that came before them. Mm -hmm. So if you're a breakthrough therapy, um, if you're a novel drug, you kind of don't have any restraints on how you can price your drug. And it's like you said before, if I'm a patient with cancer, I want the next best treatment that's out there. Um, I'm willing to sort of look at the most expensive options if that's going to be what works best for me. And pharmaceutical companies have figured out how to maximize their profits based on on that rationale. It doesn't seem to me that physicians have much incentive to um, to vote with their feet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To just say, you know, I don't think that treatment is worth, I know there was recently one of the new immune drugs, recent immune drugs, cost something like $600,000 for therapy. Apparently it's quite uh, effective for some patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't think you're going to, I mean, I think we would all wince when we hear that, but I I don't think physicians are going to, on their own, say, no, I'm not going to prescribe that because it's so expensive, right? I mean, it puts us in a difficult spot. It does. And even in the field of pharmacoeconomics, um, in my role at the hospital, that's a very difficult balancing act because you want to be able to provide the best care for each individual patient, but you also want to look at the benefit of these treatments across the entire health system or across our society. And I think, um, you know, recently you've seen physicians start to speak out about the value of drugs, the benefit that they offer their patients, sometimes maybe only an extra month of survival for double or triple the price. And I think what spearheaded this movement is a few years ago at Memorial Sloan Kettering, there were physicians who actually stepped back and told the drug company that that they wouldn't do it. Um, And I think from the hospital's perspective by bringing me on, we're hoping to sort of leverage the power of our data internally to be able to show that there are certain treatments that are not as beneficial 
um, after they've been approved in our patient population, and maybe paying three times the price of a more effective treatment isn't what we're in line to do. And if we look at the issue more broadly, um, in terms of why prices have increased in, in general, um, there, there are many factors at, at play here, um, one of them being Medicare. And uh, Medicare, as we know, the, is a, the largest buyer of pharmaceuticals in, in the U.S. And uh, they have, for many years, been unable to negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical industry. And, and this started... In, Why are they unable? Well, legislatively, in, in 2003, Congress approved a program called the Medicare Modernization Act um, under the Bush administration, and the aim of this act was to help seniors buy prescription drugs. Part D of Medicare, right? Right, Part mm -hmm. D. Um, but the caveat with this was that the was Medicare was not allowed to negotiate drug prices, and this was reinforced um, in 2010 with uh, the Affordable Care Act, um, in which the 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 Medicare was not allowed to negotiate prices. So that's that's one aspect of it. Another is that drug companies also make multi-million dollar deals with patient advocacy groups. And these groups are supposed to be acting on behalf of the consumer and, uh, to lower prices. But because, because the industry has so much lobbying power, um, they can make these deals. Um, and also, uh, they spend, the pharmaceutical industry spends an equivalent of around $468,000 per each member of Congress for, for lobbying uh, their drugs so, uh, uh, so Medicare won't regain the power to negotiate prices. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful <laughs> stuff there. Uh, we're going to need to break here, however, so I can like wipe my forehead. <laughs> and get out of this uh, kind of paranoid state that you're putting me in uh, and take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about pharmacoeconomics and Trojan horses with Sapna and William. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, committed to providing targeted cancer medicines for patients. When it comes to cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Sapna Prasad and William Burns. We've been discussing pharmacoeconomics. Uh, wow. So uh, this has been pretty interesting. So William, you were saying that... Uh, before the break, that the pharma companies partner with patient advocacy groups? Correct. And 
and, and what is that? Is that like going up to the breast cancer who tends to have a very uh, big advocacy group and, and pitching their drug? Is that what it is? And saying, go tell your congressman that we want you to pay for this drug? Or um, So my impression is, is that they just they give these groups money in order to not um, act against that drug, in order to kind of uh, disencourage consumers uh, or disencourage these advocacy groups from um, acting against the, the high prices and kind of convincing consumers that these prices are reasonable, it's, it's what it needs to be, so just accept them and pay for it. And you think it's a, a real quid pro quo that uh, we'll give your foundation or whatever it might be, $800,000, but you may not, dot, dot, dot? Do you think there's that well, explicit it, or implicit? Do you have any evidence for that? I, I don't have much evidence for that, but uh-huh. it, it's definitely a phenomenon that's happening. Uh, it's definitely a concern. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is there is not uh, – there. There's not a lot of evidence against the pharmaceutical industry right now because they have so much lobbying power, and it's definitely something we need to have a discussion about. And yeah, no, I, no, I think so. I, uh, my experience with uh, with patient advocacy groups, uh, at least my, my perspective, is that they are often uh, – they're smarter than that, I, I, I would think, mm-hmm. I would hope. Uh, the consumers individually may may not be so much, but uh, but I, you know, and, and you're it's entirely possible that that you may be right, which is why I had to sort of wipe my forehead before. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's uh, kind of yucky. Uh, wow. So um, so Sapna, what kind of uh, you've been here six months or I have. has it been mm-hmm. six months, right? So. Uh, you know, a lot of that is meet and greet and sure. figure out uh, our very complicated <laughs> systems and get people to know you before you start, you know, making enemies. Exactly. Which could be it's pretty easy true. for your job. <laughs> so what, what what's happening on the ground? What, sure. are, you, what are you doing? Um, so in sort of building this pharmacoeconomics program, um, we're looking at a, a few different avenues. Um, so one of the great things about my job, like you said, is the ability to to go out and meet with other people, to work within this system of the Yale Medical School, the Yale Cancer Center, Smilo Cancer Hospital, um, and try to bring together the resources that we have to make this program a really robust and evidence-based program. So that means um, working with clinicians who are on the ground delivering care and also with the academic side. So when you're talking about methodology, the right types of health economic models to build, um, those are the people that I would be working with to um, build models to show the value of the drugs that we use in the hospital. So on a day-to-day basis, I'm doing anything from um, presentations about pharmacoeconomics. So this is a very new way of thinking. Um, It's often done sort of in the academic silo. It doesn't always have implications for real practical decisions at the hospital level. We all know about cost effectiveness, right? We all pay lip service to that. Exactly. But how are you actually able to use those tools to make effective decisions for the hospital? Right. It's it's important for other people's medical subspecialties, but not for mine, maybe. Right, right. right. And, And I've heard that a lot. You know, until we become enemies... What you're doing is great, and when it affects my patients, then we'll have to delve into the details. Um, So a lot of it, which I actually really enjoy, is having conversations about what pharmacoeconomics can bring to the table. And then the other um, things that I'm focusing on right now are really trying to look at what treatments are we using in the hospital right now? As you mentioned, there are hundreds of cost-effectiveness 
uh, articles that are published weekly. Um, if you Google a simple drug, especially an expensive oncology drug, you'll come up with 10 or 15 results. So what the therapies that we're using now, what does the literature say about how cost-effective they are? And how are we using those treatments in the hospital? And what does our internal data say that is the cost effectiveness of that drug. So kind of trying to benchmark our performance at Smilo versus what's published in the literature about the cost effectiveness of treatments. Of course, our numbers of patients is much smaller. Is much smaller, right? right. But when you think about drug costs, so one of the things when you're talking about kind of cost setting for a pharmaceutical company is nobody knows what institutions actually pay for drugs. So every contract is negotiated based on certain rebates, based on certain patient populations. So the unique thing about my role is that I often have access to data that's specific to the prices that we're paying at Yale New Haven Health Mm. um, that we can then put into our economic models to give a more accurate sense of what, what we're paying for different drugs. Gotcha. William, in your research, did you look at, uh, you mentioned that we are one of the few uh, countries or societies that that enable this uh, direct-to-consumer advertising. Have you, did, did you read anything about other countries, as how things are, say, in the U.K., where things are much more restricted? Or do you have any insight into that or other countries? Um, well, uh, I guess generally the U.S. has more regulations uh, compared to other countries. Um, uh, prescription drugs are... Um, one of the few aspects of healthcare where Medicare doesn't have the power to negotiate and set mm-hmm. prices in the U.S., um, and this is something that's fairly unique to the United States. Um, other countries, governments look at the cost effectiveness of, of drugs much more um, regularly. So uh, I think Sopna's work is great, and it's definitely the, the direction that we need to go in. Yeah, I mean, we hear, uh, you know, it's like the U.K. is the bogeyman, mm-hmm. right, because of what they've done. Is it the NICE committee? Yeah. So <laughs> kind of a, NICE is kind <laughs> of like a, a oxymoron, right? Could you tell is, us about that? It is. So the U.K., um, I think, is probably the most talked about in this idea of how do you bring health economics to formulary decisions. So their National Institute, um, I believe for Clinical Excellence, which goes by NICE, Uh they actually have what's called a willingness to pay threshold. So they come up with a number um, and they say any cancer treatment or specialty treatment um, that is cost effective above this threshold, we won't offer to our patients. So they have actually, in many cases, um, denied drugs on their formulary in the UK, largely because they do have a single payer system and they can't afford those expensive drugs. And so what they do is when they evaluate a drug, much like the FDA does for clinical efficacy and safety, they also are required to submit cost-effectiveness models. So NICE does uh, review those models and conduct their own assessment, and then will come out with a ruling where they either approve or deny the drug based on the cost-effectiveness. Yeah, and I can tell you that, uh, at least in my field of hematology, Mm -hmm. uh, there were some very important drugs where the uh, physicians, the academic physicians had to advocate where NICE had initially uh, declined Mm -hmm. to include a a 
what a drug that we see is pretty important in the formulary and only reconsidered after more data and right. physician advocacy. I don't know if the, whether there was patient advocacy involved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, although, interestingly, with this particular drug, and I, I don't want to disclose what it is, and it's something that I study myself, uh, has been in the real world now for about 12 years. Mm-hmm. Our group has done um, what we call comparative effectiveness analysis, so looking at large uh, data sets uh, of what's happening in the real world where we don't really get a lot of information about each patient, but we see what happens to lots of patients who are being treated with this drug. And really, the outcomes aren't as good as we thought from our clinical trials. And Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say it's not a good drug, but, I mean, it is a little sobering. It is. Really, it's not. Now, maybe people aren't using it the way they're supposed to in the community. I don't know. Right. Well, and I think that you're going to start to see a focus on that type of um, post, what they call post-approval data. So um, in a clinical trial, generally, you expect the outcomes to be what you would expect in in an ideal setting. And you know, I think better than anyone here, that that's not always the case with your patients. Usually not. Exactly. Um, so I think those types of studies are becoming increasingly important, and a lot of these uh, this movement towards value-based purchasing or value-based payment includes that idea that if a drug is shown not to be as effective in the real world, you shouldn't be able to charge the list price or such a high price for that drug. Yeah, no, I, and I don't want to get too political here, although I'm not sure <laughs> whether I'm supposed to or not. But uh, but uh, there is an agency of the federal government called uh, AHRQ that's supposed to be in sort of head spearheading this. And I, and I understand right. the proposed Republican budget uh, defunds AHRQ, mm-hmm. which they've tried to do in the past. Is, am I right about that? Right. Um, I, th- I believe that they would move AHRQ under CMS's purview um, and severely decrease the funding. And it's, I mean, it's And this sad. is the agency that was supposed to do cost effectiveness, which was supposed to, not cost effectiveness and comparative effectiveness. Correct. That was supposed to uh, be used for coverage under the Affordable Care Act, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And so they put out a, a lot of really great tools and they share, it's a great learning network of other institutions that have done comparative effectiveness research that you can then use to make decisions um, about your own formulary. But they're also called death squads, right? Or death <laughs> panels, death panels, right? Yep, yep. So I've, I've heard that, I've heard rationing. You know, there, there's a lot of words out there that... Um, are kind of bring people quick to judge when you talk about uh, drugs and and their life-saving capabilities. Yeah. So, William, how do we get rid of the Trojan horse? I mean, what, <laughs> what, what do you think? Um, well, like I said, I think Sapna is on the right path. Uh, right now, there's just not a lot of research that's looking at uh, the comparison between drugs and how, how they stack up against each other. Um, so in, in many cases, like we've been talking about, the rate of price increase is not is not commensurate with the rate uh, at which the drugs are improving. And do you think our congressmen will listen to Sapna's research when they're getting however much money, $500,000 per congressperson or something? Um, you know, that's that's something that, that time will tell. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime, anytime soon. I right. think the industry is just too strong, has too much money, has too much lobbying power. Right. And do you, do you think that there's a... Um, that there is a constituency here? I mean, do you think that uh, 
that that we can appeal to the population saying, well, you're you're that if we do this and we choose things carefully, maybe your premium prices will go on go down. Do you think that would be helpful for people, or do you think they say, no, you're just trying to restrict the drugs, and I don't want that? I mean, what, do you have any thinking about that? Well, I, there is a downside to. Uh, having Medicare having the power to negotiate prices, and, and I think that would be that uh, the innovation of the research would go down That's somewhat. What people argue. So mm-hmm. I feel like there would be a constituency against that argument as well, um, as well as for. So it, it's a sticky issue and uh, something that time will tell what, what's going to happen. Well, you know, I'm thinking that neuroscience may not be the right major for you, <laughs> William. I, I'm thinking it's economics, uh, and then you can team up with Sapna yeah. and do some very cool, or we, we have a wonderful other people in pharmacoeconomics here in the School of Public Health. I happen to be married to one of them, uh, for example. Uh, so there's, there's, there's great research, and I think in the School of Organization and Medicine, there's mm-hmm. people who are also interested. So not to tell you what to do, spring of your... You both. You can always do both. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with neuroscience. <laughs> so my best friends are neuroscientists. But, you know, they may have some pretty expensive drugs, too, for brain cancer. So uh, anyways, off now that that's just a little sidebar for you. Uh <laughs> Have you been getting mostly positive responses, Safna? Yeah, I, I, the response I've gotten, the welcome I've received um, at Smilo has been fantastic. The hospital leadership um, are really in tune with I, this idea that in the next five to 10 years, this is going to be the way that the world works. In the U.S., we're going to have to start looking very critically about what drugs we're able to offer, how expensive they are. Um, there's simply not enough resources to go around. I think we're very fortunate here to have access to drugs, to have the clinical research that's going on, but that's not the case in a lot of places um, across the country. So people are, re- are very receptive um, to this idea. There's a lot of um, leadership who are pushing for this sort of culture change. And I think William's right. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. It's going to be sort of a gradual process. It's going to take um, physicians and other clinicians sort of understanding what the benefit of this perspective is. And then it's going to take a lot of um, lobbying and advocacy and um, work with the pharmaceutical companies to make sure that we're paying the value of the drug Sapna Prasad is a pharmacoeconomics specialist at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and William Burns is an undergraduate at Yale University. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.